You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll delve into Sermon 2 of Racism and Economics. When we equip ourselves using the advice and tools that God has given us, we set ourselves up for success. Let's get started. Hey, happy Sunday, family. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Sunday morning. I'm so excited to share the Word of God with you to all of our TWC family and even our guests, those of you that may be joining us from a variety of places around the world. We are so honored to have you. If you haven't already, open your TWC app or open your Bibles, and I want to ask you to join me in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse number 4. Proverbs 6, beginning at verse number 4, and as always, each week our teaching notes are available for you on our TWC app. Proverbs chapter six, beginning at verse number four, says this. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Well, family, welcome to week four of our teaching series, Race, Truth, and Reconciliation. And welcome to part two of the message that we began on last Sunday, Racism and Economics. Now, on last week, we took a look at how prejudice plus power has been used throughout history to economically marginalize black and brown people. Now, through the game of Monopoly, We looked at important events and economic initiatives that singularly benefited white Americans and were intentionally designed not to benefit black and brown communities. History undeniably reveals how white Americans have benefited from several trips around the Monopoly board, while black and brown families have remained mostly in prison economically. This is how we got where we are today economically. White families have more than 10 times the wealth of black and brown families. And by wealth, I mean financial margin. Money left over after bills and expenses have been taken care of. For every $1 of white wealth in America, black and brown families barely have 10 cents. Now, in addition to looking at what the Word of God has to say about all of this last week, we also concluded with this question. In light of all of this, what do we do now? This is what Proverbs 6 begins to answer for us. What these verses explain to us is that we cannot treat this cavalierly and we cannot drag our feet on this issue. This is why verse 4 opens up and says, Allow no sleep to your eyes and no slumber to your eyelids. Translation, we have to get after it. There should be a fire ignited in your heart to get out of the hole financially. And then verse 5 says, Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a gazelle running from a lion, but it is flat 
out running for its life. That's the sense of urgency that God is saying we have to have when it comes to this subject. We cannot, y'all, drag our feet on this. We cannot simply log off after this message or teaching series is over and just go back to life as normal. You cannot allow this to be just another good message that you do nothing with. Listen to me. We have to radically change our thinking and our behavior, and we have to get after it in order to change our financial future. If not, God tells us what's going to happen. He says in Proverbs, poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. The message translation says it a little bit differently. It says this, a nap here, a nap there, a day off here, a day off there, sit back, take it easy. Do you know what comes next? Just this. You can look forward to a dirt poor life, poverty, your permanent house guest. If we don't get after it and make changes financially, things are not going to get any better. In fact, they're going to get worse. There is a financial tsunami coming of epic proportions. In 25 years, the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world is going to happen. It's going to exponentially widen the wealth gap and will potentially wipe out what little wealth black and brown communities have. Where will you be financially 25 years from now? What position will your children and others coming behind you be in financially 25 years from now? What will you transfer financially to the next generation 25 years from now? Will they be in a better financial position because you lived 25 years from now? Now, today I'm going to share with you this morning four critically important things that we need to embrace and align ourselves around in order to change our financial future. Now, in many ways, what I'm going to share with you is not new. The problem is we stopped doing it a long time ago. Following the Civil War during the time of Reconstruction from about 1867 to 1877, there were several Black Wall Streets that emerged. Tulsa, Oklahoma was one of them. Rosewood, Florida was another. And Harlem, New York was one as well. These cities became meccas of Black enterprise, Black ownership, and Black prosperity because they were aligned around the same values that I'm going to share with you in a moment. Now, this is, in fact, why we are broadcasting again this Sunday morning from Citizens Trust Bank here in downtown Birmingham. On August 16th of 1921, Citizens Trust Bank opened on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, Georgia. Its founder was an African-American businessman, Heman Perry, and he served as the first chairman of the board. And Henry C. Dugas was Citizens Trust's first president. Now, it was an instance of discrimination that inspired the creation of this bank. Perry attempted to be fitted for a pair of socks at a white-owned store, and he was refused. And so ultimately, his desire was that black businessmen could own and operate their own businesses independently of white-owned financial institutions. And so Perry and four other partners, collectively known as the Fervent Five, formed Citizens Trust Bank. Listen, this black-owned bank has not only survived, 
but it has thrived because of these same values that I'm going to share with you this morning. These values have served us well in the past. The problem is we drifted away from them. That's why this message is intended to sound the alarm. Family, there has to be an awakening in black and in brown communities And we have to realign our lives around these values that at one time served us very well. Listen, we cannot change the present state of where we are financially. But what we can change is our thinking, our values, and our behavior so that our financial future will be a whole lot different. The first value I want to share with you this morning is this. Number one, you got to know more. The first thing we have to do is to aim to know more. Financial education is the cornerstone of financial freedom. In fact, Hosea chapter four and verse six says it this way. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. The point here from the prophet Hosea is that ignorance will destroy you. And specifically, financial ignorance ultimately leads to financial destruction. When this verse refers to a lack of knowledge, it's not just talking about the things that we don't know. There are a number of things that we don't know. What this verse is referring to is that there are some things, though, that we should know. But instead of going after that wisdom, we make willful decisions to be okay with not knowing. And ultimately, that destroys us. Knowing more financially is the first key in changing your financial future. Now, this is so important when we talk about families of color because most of us grew up in homes where financial wisdom was not passed down to us. My mother was the first person in our family, for an example, to go to college. Now, she learned a lot. She went on to get a master's degree in education and then in theology. But guess what? She never learned in college. She never learned how to handle money. They didn't teach it there. My grandmother didn't go to college. She was a maid. My grandfather didn't go to college. He was a postal worker and a pastor. So how did my mother learn to manage money? She learned by watching her parents who had no education and through trial and error. Now, here's the point. Most people of color have generationally learned about finances through the experience of others and watching how others who often didn't have any education themselves manage their money. And herein lies the problem. If no one in the home is educated on this subject and the schools don't deal with it, where does that leave us? With generations handing down misinformation, misguidance, and poor money management skills. This is why knowing more is absolutely paramount. The only way to break this cycle of misinformation and misguidance and poor money management skills is to know more. You have to seek out the wisdom to change your financial future. See, behaviors are influenced by what you know. And what you know is influenced by what you've been exposed to. This is why knowing more is the first step to change. Having more financial knowledge removes the blind spots so we can do better. Now listen, it's not that communities of color are the only ones affected by a lack of financial knowledge. It's just that this lack of knowledge disproportionately affects us. 
and we cannot ignore it any longer. Our economic future is at stake. Let me tell you two stories to better communicate this point. When I was in high school, I shared with my father that I felt the Lord calling me into full-time ministry. And initially, my dad wasn't really excited about it. My father wanted me to go into business or he wanted me to be an attorney. And so I guess he shared it with some of his friends and some of his neighbors, his frustration or concern about my desire to go into full-time ministry. And one of my father's neighbors was a man by the name of Rick Cook. Rick Cook was a serial entrepreneur. At the time, he owned several Mrs. Winners franchises, and Rick was the son-in-law of Jesse Hill. Jesse Hill was one of the early black multimillionaires in Atlanta, Georgia. He was the founder and creator of Atlanta Life Insurance Company. One day, I was uh, spending time with my dad, as I did in the summers, and I was cutting grass in the front yard. And Rick Cook drove by and he asked me to come over and he began to talk to me. And he said, listen, your father told me that you want to go into ministry. And he says, I don't have a problem with that. He says, but here's what I want to do. I want to teach you about business. He says, because there are too many pastors that don't know about business and you need to know about business if you're going to be effective the way that I believe God wants to use you. And so Rick Cook just took it upon himself and just became, in many ways, a financial mentor. He gave me tons of books to read. And whenever I was visiting my father, he would always take me around to his franchises and his properties and teach me about business. And he gave me tons and tons of books to read. And none of these books were about scripture. None of these books were about how to uh, adequately exegete a text or to put together a hermeneutically sound message. It was all about entrepreneurship and business and finance. And so then let's fast forward. 15 plus years ago, when my wife and I then moved from South Florida here to Birmingham, by that time, my wife and I had a pretty robust investment portfolio of of homes in Florida and in Georgia. I had my own business. Uh, my wife had our own home before we got married. I had my own home. Uh, we sold those homes and uh, made uh, a pretty decent amount of money. And so God had blessed us through business, through me putting into effect those principles that I learned from Rick Cook. And when we moved to Birmingham, uh, because of the move, uh, the financial company or institution that we were investing with had a branch in Birmingham. And they said, well, since you're moving from South Florida to Birmingham, we're going to naturally move your accounts, which meant that we had another uh, money manager that was going to manage our, our accounts instead of the individual that used to manage them before when we were in South Florida. And so when we got to Birmingham and met this gentleman, I called my CPA who we'd been with um, for a very, very long time. And I said, hey, here's what's going on. Uh, What do you think? She said, let me um, come up to Birmingham. She flew from South Florida to Birmingham just to meet this gentleman. And this gentleman was very wealthy and had done well in the investment business. Uh, lived in a very, very highbrow, wealthy neighborhood. And he had us to dinner in such a palatial home. And he wined us and dined us, if you will, and told us everything that he was planning to do with the money that we had invested. And we sat there and it was really nice and gracious to be in his home. But when we left, we were in the driveway of this gentleman's home and our CPA, who flew all the way from Florida to Birmingham just to meet with this guy, said this to us. She said, he's not smart enough or savvy enough for what you guys really need. 
She said, let me introduce you to another group of investors that will really be what you need for where you're trying to go. Now, here's the point. I didn't know who these investment people were, but because she recommended it to us, we went with them and the rest, as they say, is history. I didn't know much of what Rick Cook encouraged me to read many, many years ago, but because he recommended that I read it, I read those books, even though I wasn't thinking about business way back then. What's the point here? The point of both of these stories is simply this. If you want to learn, you have to be taught. And in order to be taught, you must be challenged and even criticized. But in order to be challenged and criticized, you have to be bigger than your insecurities and fears. See, one of the biggest reasons why we don't know more financially is because we allow our financial insecurities and fears to control us. And I'm calling you out because you have to get past that. In order to change the game, you can't just be a fan in the stands. You gotta come out of the stands and you gotta play the game. And the only way to play the game well is that you have to become a student of the game. All of the greats in sports, in business, in entertainment, and in every other field, what makes them great is that they study. That's how they become great. So here's the question. What are you studying right now financially? Let me tell you something. Netflix and TikTok won't help you with this one. Facebook and power won't get you there. We have to commit to knowing more. Number one, we've got to know more. But then secondly, we have to own more. We have to own more. Once we know more, the next value we must embrace is to own more. In a 1912 essay, W.E.B. Du Bois said this. He said, today there is a singular group in Durham where a black man may get up in the morning from a mattress made by black men in a house which a black man built out of lumber which black men cut and planned. He may put on a suit which he bought at a colored haberdashery and socks knit at a colored mill. He may cook victual from a colored grocery on a stove which black men fashioned. He may earn his living working for colored men, be sick in a colored hospital, and buried from a colored church. And the Negro Insurance Society will pay his widow enough to keep his children in a colored school. This is surely progress. All the way back in 1912, what W.E.B. Du Bois was telling us is that progress is about ownership. And you know what? Jesus teaches the same principle in the parable of the 10 minas in Luke chapter 19. It says this, it says, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. What I want you to get is this. What Jesus is saying through this parable is that God has an expectation that we do business. Another translation says it this way, put this money to work until I come back, which means 
God has an expectation that we take the money that he's given us and we put it to work. But you cannot do this without ownership. And family, you have to understand that ownership is a mindset and it's a motivation. Our country revolves around ownership. Who owns what drives our economy? America has been built through owning three things, property, equity, and businesses, not cars, jewelry, and clothes. Now, here's the thing. If you don't aspire to own property, equities, and businesses, then by default, you aspire to be owned by the people who do. Either you will own your own home or you will pay rent to the person who does. Either you will own your own business or you will rely on the graciousness of the entrepreneur or the corporation who does. Either you will own your own stocks and invest in the market or you will be owned by inflation and wage stagnation. Listen to me, family. Slavery is over, but ownership is not. Get this. Black America has $1.3 trillion, trillion with the T, dollars in spending power. Now, that is more than some respected countries in the world spend. We are mass consumers. The problem, though, is that while we're spending all of this money, we don't own much. This is why one in five black families have a zero or negative net worth. In fact, the New York Times reported in 2019 that the median family wealth for black families is only $17,600 compared to, get this, $171,000 for white families. At this current rate of savings and wealth building, guess what? It will take a black family 225 years to catch up to the average white family. That's why things have to change now. If we are going to own more, there are two things that have to happen. First, we have to stop focusing on net income and focus on net worth. Listen, being wealthy is not about how much you earn. It's about how much you're worth and how much you own. Where you work doesn't matter. How much you make doesn't matter. How old you are doesn't matter. What matters is how much do you own? We are making money. The problem is that we're spending the $1.3 trillion on stuff that doesn't appreciate in value. We don't own enough property, enough equities, and enough businesses. But here's the second thing we have to do. We have to support and collaborate with each other. Let me tell you what made the Montgomery bus boycott and the other bus boycotts that follow so effective. They understood the value of our collective money and they came together and decided to use that money in a way that created positive change. When African-Americans boycotted buses and stores in the 60s, it crippled local economies. Store owners and decision makers had to change their discriminatory behavior because they couldn't afford not to. Family, when we pool our dollars and support and collaborate with each other, we can make massive change. This bank started because people came together and collaborated with each other to create 
special change. I was reading this week about an Indian American family that owns several Subway franchises. And in the interview, the question was raised, why does your family own all of these franchises and in particular own them together? And one family member responded and said this. They said, well, when we left India, we were poor. They went on and said that none of us came to America with enough money to buy a business on our own. So we pooled our money together to buy the businesses and then we divide the profits. Here's the most important thing that this family member said that you cannot miss. This is what blew me away. He said, it's easier to build together than it is to build apart. Ah, family, hear that. Let me tell you the story of Star Finance in Minneapolis. Leaders of the Somalian community in Minneapolis came up with a solution to help their Somali brothers and sisters who come to America with very little money and very little education. They understand that ownership is critical. So what they did was they asked 200 Somalis to each invest $2,500, and then they bought four homes in the city. And their fellow Somalis rent those homes and then ultimately later buy them from Star Finance. And then they repeat the process over and over again, and they buy more and more property. I, I love this because this plan cuts out banks, cuts out the middlemen, and they are building wealth because they are owners. This is easily something, family, that we could do. Instead of only thinking about buying one home, we could buy entire blocks. We have to own more. And in particular, there are two things that we have to own more of, real estate and businesses. Let me break it down for you. Over the past 200 years, 90% of the world's millionaires have been created by investing in real estate. Now, you cannot argue with the numbers. Owning real estate is the number one way to build wealth. The other thing we need to own are more businesses. A recent study showed, get this, that business ownership is the greatest equalizer in wealth disparity. It reduces the average wealth gap from a multiplier of 13 to three. Now we can't rush past that. Let me break that down for you. This is what it means. It means that if you do nothing, if you allow this message to go in one ear and come out of the other without inspiring you to get after it financially, it means then that white families are 13 times more likely to build wealth than you are. But if you own a business, that gap decreases from 13 to three. Family, that's huge. We, we've got to know more. We've got to own more. And number three, we have to pass down more. Real wealth is never created in one lifetime. It's created from generation to generation. Black and brown communities are in the state that we are in financially because of things that have happened over the course of generations. But likewise, we can turn things around financially if we commit to pass down more generationally. Proverbs 13 and verse 22 says it this way, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for good people. 
This verse makes it clear that it's God's desire for us to pass down more. In fact, the definition of what makes you good or what makes you a sinner is based upon whether or not you pass down anything. The person who is good in this passage has a life goal to pass down more, while the sinner wastes money and is ultimately taken advantage of by guess who? Those who know more. So family, this is the million dollar question. If you were to die tonight, which part of that verse would best describe you? Now listen, when I talk about passing down more, I'm talking about not just money, I'm talking about some other things too. And I want you to understand that because it's real easy to look at your financial situation and think, well, I don't have anything, so there's nothing to pass down. But that's not exactly true. What I mean when I say that we have to pass down more is that really first we have to posture our heart to leave something behind so that the next generation has a much greater head start than we had. If you don't intentionally posture your heart to leave something behind for the next generation, by default, you are going to leave something behind. You're going to leave behind poverty. In addition to money, there are three things that you need to leave behind. First, you need to leave behind wisdom. You need to share now what you know and what you are learning about finances. If you have children, allow them to be a part of your budget discussions and budget planning. When you sit down to pay bills and to review your budget, include them. And if you don't have children, include the next generation of your family members, nieces, nephews, and cousins. Share with them the financial mistakes you've made, and even what you've learned from them because you have to pass down wisdom. Secondly, we got to pass down vision. Share with them what you see and wish for the next generation to do with the resources that you're going to leave them. Cast vision. Cast vision for what they should do with what you're going to leave them. This is where you challenge them to think big and to dream. You are giving them a head start financially for a reason, but make sure they know what to do with it. But then thirdly, we got to pass down values. Values are the sets of beliefs that really establish the financial culture for your family. You know what I'm sharing with you today are a set of values that will determine your financial future. Make sure you do the same with those who are coming behind you. Here's the thing. Everything that I'm sharing with you today is not new. These are the values that our ancestors lived by after slavery. The problem was, after they died, these values were not passed down. And that's part of the reason why we are where we are as a community. And we can't ever let that happen again. In addition to money, we have to pass down financial wisdom, vision, and values. We have to know more. We have to own more. We have to pass down more. And fourthly and finally, we have to trust God more. Family, what is undeniable is that as a community, we have a financial mountain to climb. We have to close this financial gap, and this gap is enormous. This is why we can't do it by ourselves. We need supernatural help. We need the favor and the power of God, not just spiritually, but also financially as well. God promises 
that if we trust him and handle the finances that he's given us his way, he will bless us to get out of this hole and to be a blessing to those coming behind us. Deuteronomy 8 is very clear. It says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. How do we change this game? We have to know more, own more, pass down more, and trust God more. Family, I've got so much more for you next week. I hope that you'll join us. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Bishop Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.